Well, church, my aim next the next four Sundays is to preach one chapter a week through the book of Ruth. And the book of Ruth is one of the more known stories in the Old Testament, but it's also known for a reason, because it's a great story that illustrates God's work in the messy, messy lives of his people. And so why Ruth? Why Ruth now? Why, why are we going to take some time this month to consider this book? Well, 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says the following. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Faith, hope, love. I couldn't think of three more obvious themes. If, if, this is, if these things are the most important things, no more, we probably find no other place in the Old Testament that more crystallizes and compacts these three, these three themes in the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth expresses these three truths of faith, hope, and love in a very penetrating, powerful way. We see it in the main characters of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, who we'll be introduced to in later weeks. We see examples of faith in Ruth. We see examples of faith in Naomi. We see examples of faith in Boaz. We see examples of hope in all three of them. We see examples of love. And so as we journey through the book of Ruth, my prayer is that we would too encounter faith, hope, and love, and that these things would take on a practical kind of concrete. We would take them out of just the abstract of this is what faith is and this is what hope is and actually actualize them into the mess of this world and the way God works in and through his people. And so I hope that you'll have faces and illustrations that go with faith, hope, and love and what it really looks like, not just what we might think it looks like but the way it plays itself out under God's sovereign control in a very broken world as he's seeking to redeem his people. So here's the thesis this morning. We're going to look at chapter 1. The title of my sermon is Clinging to God in the Darkest of Days. And here's the theme that we're going to unpack. It is this. God is at work in our darkest times, and we must recognize our plight, cling to him, and wait in hope. I'll read it again. God is at work in our darkest times, And we must recognize our plight, cling to him, and wait in hope. First of all, we must recognize our plight. Were you struck in the first five verses of Ruth chapter 1 just how bleak the situation is? It's a terrible situation. There is literally unrest, disturbance, difficulty, trial, calamity at every turn. We see it first of all in verse 1 where we're introduced to the time in which this is occurring, in the days when the judges ruled. If you know your Old Testament well, the book of Judges precedes the book of Ruth, and it is by no means a happy book. That was a 400-year period in the life of Israel after they entered the Promised Land under Joshua, but it was before there were any kings in Israel. It was one of the worst periods in Israel's history. Judges 21:25 says it in summary form. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And we see this cycle over and over again in the book of Judges of relapse where God's people fall into sin. There's retribution or judgment on the part of God. There's repentance on the part of the people. And then there's rescue or restoration in the form of a judge. But as this book unfolds and those cycles repeat, The outcomes do not improve. In fact, they get worse and the judges get worse. And so the book of Ruth occurs in this time period. It's a time of great political despair and destruction and darkness. Second, there's physical suffering 
There's a famine. We see also that in verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And God had promised his people that were they to continue in sin and rebel against him and not learn from their repentance and truly repent and walk with him, that there would be famine as a result. And isn't it ironic that there's a famine in the house of bread? Bethlehem literally means house of bread. There's not only that, but there's also great death and sadness that occurs. Before we get to that, notice where they have left and where they have fled to in verse 1. A man of Bethlehem, Elimelech, in Judah, went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Moab was a very terrible place. It was not a place that was under God's blessing by any means. Elimelech perhaps should have responded to this famine in a different way. We're not told why he goes to Moab. We're, we're told that there's a famine, and so we're, we're assuming that he's fleeing the famine and trying to find food. But to flee to Moab was not anything that God would have endorsed. In fact, the Moabites were a scandalous people. The people of Moab were considered a godless place because its citizens descended from Moab who was the son of incest between the wicked Lot and his own daughter in Genesis chapter 19. So they were known for their immorality and idolatry, and God had declared that no no Moabite would ever enter the assembly of his people down to the 10th generation in Deuteronomy 23. So for a Jewish man to move his family into the country of Moab was a sign of immense desperation on his part. And we don't know ultimately why Elimelech left. We're not told, but his name literally means, My God is King. But he seems to not be having that in his mind and occupying his heart as he's desperate, as his desperation leads him out of the place of God's presence. So perhaps he's under a crisis of faith. It could be rebellion that led him to Moab. But ironically, he leaves the house of bread to find bread. So we've got political unrest. We've got physical unrest. We've got civic unrest. We've got cultural unrest going into the country of Moab and We've got death. And this is perhaps what stands out to us most starkly as we read these first five verses. Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons journey into Moab, and one death is preceded after another. First of all, Elimelech dies, leaving behind his sons and his wife. And both of his sons marry Moabites. They marry those who are outside of the covenant people of God. And they're barren. The women are not childbearing, at least not at this point. And then the sons die. So Elimelech passes, he dies. Naomi's two sons die, and all that is left is Naomi and her two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. Naomi's absolutely destitute. Her only family is two daughters-in-law from a despised people and no support network. If you lived in this time, men were your security system. They were the ones that you looked to to provide support and help. So when you lose your husband and you lose both of your sons, you lose everything. She has no physical descendants to carry on her family line, no promise of future provision, and no idea what to do next. You have a famine 
You have a move to pagan Moab. You have the death of a husband. You have the marriage of her sons to foreign wives. And you have the death of those sons. Blow by blow, tragedy upon tragedy. So what are we to learn from this? Well, we learn several things. But, you know, we too live in a time similar to the judges. We live in a time where everyone seems to be doing what is right in their own eyes. And people often, as a result of that, reap the consequences of their own sinful choices. And we see here with Naomi that the decisions of others have unfavorably affected her. The decision of her husband. She has to live with the choices that he made. And perhaps you, you have to live with the choices that other people have made. We have to live with choices made by others, whether they be a parent, a spouse, a child, a sibling, a friend, an employer, a politician, a criminal. And you may feel alone and helpless and anxious and alienated because of the death of a loved one, the estrangement of a relationship, or just the ups and downs of life. Maybe you just feel pounded and just numbed by the pain. It's not unusual for God's people to have a dark night, or shall I say a dark year, or a dark decade of the soul. However, this text challenges us to believe that God is active in our lives even when it hurts. And make no mistake, God brings us into situations that are immensely hurtful and painful. So when you think he's farthest from you, though, actually, he's not. When you think that he's turned against you, the truth is that he's laying a foundation of something greater. So judge not the Lord by feeble sense. Or trust, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. We'll see that at the end of this book. But in these days, I just want you to appreciate what's going on. That this is an absolutely terrible plight. Second point. God is at work in our darkest times. We must recognize our plight. We've seen that. Second, we must cling to him. Naomi encourages Ruth and Orpah to stay. In Moab, while she returns to Bethlehem, we see there's a glimmer of hope on the horizon. Look at verse 6. She arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So in the midst of her deepest and darkest despair, she gets a ray of light. She gets a ray of hope, and it's in the form of food that is now in Bethlehem. And so they're going to go back. They're going to return. But notice that Naomi tells them to return to Moab, to stay, to not go back with her. Why would she say something like that? Well, because she knew that in taking them to Israel, they'd have no prospect of marriage. These are two young women, totally marriageable, totally still able to to, to have children, to marry again. But no faithful Israelite is going to marry a Moabitess. So better for them to re- stay in Moab where they have the prospect of a, of a husband and a prospect of a future. While Naomi recognizes she doesn't have a future. No man's going to marry her. She's far too old. She's destitute. She has nothing to offer. So she tells her daughters in verse 8, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant, verse 9, that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices 
and wept. Now, think about this. Naomi's so broken, so under duress, and seeing hope, yet still feeling the effects of all that has happened to her, that it appears that she has very little concern for the spiritual condition of her daughters-in-law. It seems she was content to see them fed, married, and generally happy, even if they worship false gods. Let me ask you this question. Are are we the same with unbelievers around us? Do we lack a fundamental concern for their spiritual well-being? Only focused on their physical welfare? Do we assume that they might not be interested in the gospel? But perhaps if we stepped out and shared the gospel with them, that we might discover that they were more interested than we previously imagined? Our problem is that we all too often have little real care for our friends and neighbors as Naomi had for hers. Why is that? Well, part of it has to do with the difficulty that Naomi wasn't a very good member of the covenant community herself. (laughs) Those who are consciously living a life of disobedience or have reaped the fruit of disobedience aren't typically eager to defend and explain the faith to others. And those who are under deep duress and trial and difficulty who are finding it hard to trust God and walk with God aren't necessarily the quickest to commend him. And plus, you have to wonder if Ruth is ashamed and doesn't want to bring two Moabite women back to Israel with her. Imagine the testimony of what people would say about her as she journeyed back into the community. A testimony of her disobedience to God that she left the covenant people. Their presence would be a constant reminder of her sin and abandoning the promised land and marrying her sons outside of God's covenant. So you might think, though, yeah, that's me. That's me. I mean, I've blown it. There's no way people would believe my witness now. It's been compromised at work and my family and my neighborhood. No use opening my mouth for the gospel. I'm ashamed. If I invited someone to church, they'd be like, you go to church? Yet isn't it encouraging that even when Naomi was like this, God was still drawing Ruth to to himself? Even when Naomi was only looking out for Ruth's physical interests, God was looking out for Ruth's spiritual interests. God was at work in the midst of Ruth's life while Naomi was still a mess. See, do we think we have to have it all together spiritually to commend God to others, to commend Christ to others? No. In fact, it may war against people coming to Christ. Ruth knew Naomi's mess. She knew her trial. She knew her difficulty. She knew all that, all that, and all that that was producing in her life in terms of sort of a struggling, stammering faith. And yet God was still able to use her in spite of her attitude. God's mission to rescue sinners is not limited to the flaws, faults, and failings of his people. And we can praise him for that. So they argue about it, whether or not they should go back, whether they should stay with Naomi or not. You notice in verse 10, they said to her, no, we're going to return with you to your people. But Naomi said, look, turn back, my daughter. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And she argues with them to go and to leave. But ironically... Orpah's name means obstinate. And she seems to be the one who's most complicit 
to Naomi's request to go back. While Ruth clings to Naomi's God. Notice how she responds here in the perhaps the most precious verses in the whole book, verses 16 and 17. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Verse 18, when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. What a beautiful response on the part of Ruth. Now, keep in mind, Ruth is a Moabite. She is not part of God's covenant people, and yet she is demonstrating greater faith than God's covenant child, Naomi. This is straight throughout the Bible. We see it over and over and over again. Where we expect to find faith, we don't. And where we don't find faith, we don't expect to find faith, we do. Because God is all about turning the world upside down. Saving the worst, those whom Israel would write off as being far too gone. And yet he saves one right here and brings her in to the covenant. She pledges herself to Naomi and not just pledging herself to Naomi. She pledges herself to Naomi's God and to Naomi's people. Now, think about this. I want to talk to some of you just for a second who wouldn't identify in this room as a Christian. And by a Christian, I don't just mean somebody who grew up in Owensboro who's not a Buddhist. I mean someone who is actively right now living their life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The way you determine that is to ask, how did the, Lord, how did the fact that Jesus is Lord affect your decisions this week? That's what it means to be a Christian. It means Jesus is functioning as the master and Lord of your life and is affecting your decisions. What did he, under what circumstances did he lead you to deny yourself this week? So there are really then only two responses when we meet dark days. We can abandon God, like Orpah, or we can cling to him, like Ruth. Naomi is weak, so weak that she basically encourages her daughters-in-law just to give up and go back to idols and false gods, and Orpah takes her up on the offer. So what will be your decision? Will you join Orpah in her pursuit of a comfortable life, one where she probably met Mr. Wright and had children and lived happily ever after in Moab? Or will you be like Ruth, who forsook comfort and security in this world and threw herself by faith on the mercy and loving kindness of God? That's what it means to become a follower of Christ. And brothers and sisters, fellow Christians... It's closely, it's costly to be a Christian. We have to understand that from Naomi or from Ruth's example here. It was costly, so costly for Ruth to convert. I mean, she was embracing the possibility of widowhood. She was embracing prejudice. She was embracing vulnerability. She was embracing dependence. She was embracing weakness. That's what it meant for her to venture all onto Naomi's God and Naomi's people. 
Here's what one writer said. People who put their faith in God respond to their circumstances not with self-centered strategies for coping, but with obedience and trust that sometimes defy conventional thinking. If God is active in history, bring to be, brought into being to entrust one... Sorry, let me read the sentence again. If God is active in history, then we must entrust our well-being and future into his care. And that becomes the only sensible course to take. To try to direct our own lives according to conventional worldly wisdom will always come up short in the face of so many unforeseen and manage, unmanageable variables. That's what we see in Ruth. We see this willingness to step out and throw it all on the faithfulness of God. And you know what? We learn something about how to love each other here too, don't we? We learn something from Ruth about what it means to love God's people. Committing ourselves to God means also committing ourselves to his people. That's what, Naomi, that's what Ruth says. Ruth says, your God will be my God and your people will be my people. And you know who she's embracing when she embraces those people? People who might not like her. People who might give her a hard time. People that might be stubborn toward her, recalcitrant. But you know what, brothers and sisters, committing ourselves to God also means committing ourselves to his people. And his people are often stubborn, frequently offensive. And he calls his own people like you and me who are the same stubborn, recalcitrant, frequently offensive people, his church, his flock. And even though Ruth knew she would find no warm welcome among, among Naomi's kin, she committed herself to them anyway. Are you committed to the church? Are you committed to God's people even when we find her people to be a disappointing bunch and lacking many of the fruit of the Spirit that we would like to see that is often characteristic of a lack of the fruit of the Spirit that we would like to see even in our own lives? I think we learn from Ruth about what it means to have true covenant love. Third point. So God is at work in our darkest times, and we must recognize our plight. We must cling to him like we see in Ruth and in Naomi. And then we must wait in hope. Why do I say we must wait in hope? Because things don't change overnight. Things don't just flip-flop and change all of a sudden. It's like, well, I pledge my life to God and his people. Everything's going to be better tomorrow. In a certain sense, yes. In another sense, no. Yes, you have a new God, a new people. But it's not just going to go from famine to fullness right away. So we must wait in hope. In fact, we must wait our entire lives. While Naomi may be returning to Bethlehem in body, it certainly doesn't seem like she's returning in spirit at least not with a broken and contrite spirit. Notice how she responds as they make their return, Ruth and Naomi, to Bethlehem, verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem, and when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. I hope that, you know, that's, there could be different versions of stirring. Sometimes that stirring can be, oh, she's coming back, let's talk about her. But the whole town is obviously stirred up over this, and then, they said, is this Naomi? Verse 20, she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. 
for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Naomi literally means pleasant, my pleasant one. She doesn't feel pleasant. She doesn't feel like God has treated her pleasantly. She feels bitter. She feels like it would be appropriate to give her a new name. Call me Mara, which is a name, which is a name with a history in the people of Israel. It was at Mara in the wilderness on the way out of Israel that the children of Israel grumbled against the Lord because they couldn't drink the water. Remember that in Exodus 15? And this is a manifestation of Naomi's heart at her perceived lack of provision from God for her needs. But you've got to admire something about Naomi, don't you? Don't you admire that in a culture that's always trying to save face, don't you appreciate her candor and honesty? Don't you appreciate that where we're always trying to pretend for each other? Doing well. Always great. Don't you appreciate just her raw candor? I do. In Naomi, we see that although we each will likely arrive at a place of bitterness because of our brokenness, God invites us to be honest with him and others if there is to be any hope of our lives being healed so that our future has the hope of not repeating our past. In fact, this is why we sang a lament this morning from Psalm 130. You know, in the West, I think we've largely lost the practice of lamenting. In contrast, the ancient Hebrews were constantly in God's face about things. About one-third of the Psalms are laments where the psalmist pours out their hearts to God about the way they feel about things. Psalm 10.1, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? You ever told God that? God, why are you, why are you so far away? Why don't you listen to me? What about Psalm 13.1? How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? You're forgetting me now. How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 22.1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Psalm 35.17, how long, O Lord, will you look on and do nothing? Isaiah 63.17, O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we don't fear you? Such honesty rarely characterizes our praying. And our inability to lament is sad. It's because it, it's seen in our culture that the passionate person, or at least in the church culture, the passionate person is the immature person. They're unbalanced. Don't you know balance is everything? And Naomi's brokenness feels unbalanced. It's So we've got to correct her tilt a little bit. But... See, brothers and sisters, as Paul Miller says, a lament grieves that the world is unbalanced. It grieves at the gap between reality and God's promise. It believes in a God who is there, who can act in space and time. It doesn't drift into cynicism or unbelief, but it engages God passionately with what is wrong. The opposite danger, though, of not lamenting is over-lamenting, dwelling on a lament. So it's the breeding ground for bitterness And this is obviously what's happened. Naomi's gone beyond the pale of just lamenting, and she's gone into over-lamenting. She's allowed a wound to be nursed that has resulted in bitterness. 
So how do you keep a lament from drifting into bitterness? How do you confess and own your brokenness, especially when things are terrible and difficult? And we learn something here. Let me slip this in. We learn something here about how to care for people who have gone through great trials. Be like Ruth. Don't talk. Just commit. Just be there. Just stay alongside of somebody. Don't try to argue them out of their feelings. Don't try to tell them this is the, don't you know this is true? God is sovereign. He is in control. Don't do that. There's a time and a place for that. It comes about three, four, five, six months down the road, but not in the moment. So here's how we keep our lament from drifting into bitterness. Here's what Tremper Longman said. He says, there are many examples from the Psalms where there's a healthy raising of the fist to God. Did you love that? A healthy raising of the fist to God. There are also examples of unhealthy raising of the fist, notably in the wilderness. The difference is that in the healthy, they are speaking to God, not to others, because they're praying to God as they accuse him. And there's a sense of hope. So is Naomi like the psalmist or like the Israelites in the wilderness. Which is she doing? And unlike the Israelites who wanted to return to Egypt and therefore were complaining against God, Naomi is obeying. She's doing the right thing. She's returning to the promised land. Her feelings are all over the place. She's a mess spiritually, but she's going home. She's going to God. So she puts one foot in front of the other as she returns. So we can summarize the difference between an unhealthy lament and a healthy lament this way. When your bitterness is openly expressed to God and it leads you to obedience, that's a raw, pure form of faith. But when there's a bitterness that's openly expressed, which leads to disobedience, that's rebellion and needs to be repented of. So through a sheer act of will, Naomi continues just to show up for life, even when she feels like she's constantly being dealt a bad hand. Naomi's obedience in the face of suffering and disappointment is of the essence of faith, even if it's all mixed. So here's the good news for us, brothers and sisters, as we gaze at Naomi and see ourselves a bit in her portrait. God is still at work for our good, even when we sin and respond with unbelief and struggle with the trials he has sent our way. He is still at work for our good. How do we know this? Because when the circumstances of life are bad for Naomi, we can often think like Naomi that God is out to get us. That's what she says. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 21, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? We need to be careful, though, that when we don't allow our hearts to become bitter and miss the providential marks of God's continuing goodness in the midst of our difficulties. Sometimes we complain about our emptiness so much that we miss the fact that God has emptied us so that he might fill us with more of himself. Naomi's name, like I said earlier, means pleasant, but she doesn't feel that way at the time. She will soon realize, though, the truth that she is one in whom God delights. What did God do with his people in wilderness in the wilderness when they grumbled against him? Did he kill them all with a stroke of judgment? No, he made the water sweet for them. And that's exactly how he treats Naomi in the midst of her suffering. And that's exactly how he treats us in the midst of our complaining.
Ironically, the Moabite Ruth is the one upholding the Israelite Naomi in this season. Even as Ruth never abandoned Naomi, so our God never abandons us. Naomi may not have been willing to see God's blessing to her in the form of her daughter-in-law just yet, but Ruth embodied God's presence with Naomi for God and not for good and not for ill. Ruth's presence with Naomi was the assurance that God loved her, that God was not going to leave her. He was going to cause one of her daughters-in-law to cling to her and cleave to her and hold on to her as an expression of his own love, care, and purpose for Naomi. Ruth's name, after all, does mean refreshment. So when we have decided that God is against us, we usually exaggerate our hopelessness. We become so bitter we can't see the rays of light peeping out around the clouds. But Naomi is so embittered by God's hard providence that she can't see his mercy at work in her life. But oh, how she will in the days to come. So God is at work, brothers and sisters, in our darkest and most difficult times. And there is always hope on the horizon. How does all this connect to our Lord Jesus? You notice in each section here, I have three sections. Our plight, we must recognize our plight. That's verses 1 through 5. We must cling to him, verses 6 through 18. And we must wait in hope, verses 19 through 22. And in each one of those sections, we have a reference to bread. Ruth opens with the words, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. No bread. Second section, 6 through 18, Naomi, after passing the passing of her husband and her two sons, hears that the Lord has visited his people with bread. And then when she returns, verses 19 through 22, the chapter ends with the following words. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Bread, bread, bread. And just as the Lord visited his people and gave them bread in those days, so he has visited us again and given us bread in these days. However, the difference is that the Lord will not merely give physical bread to his people, but he is going to be their bread. He will visit them not only providentially in the provision of physical bread, but also spiritually in the provision of the bread of life, his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Jesus announced in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Additionally, Jesus left heaven and he came to earth to cling to us like Ruth did to Naomi. He says to us, every one of you who are his people this morning, where you go, I will go. Where you go, I will go. And as a result of this covenant bond with us, nothing, not even death, could separate us from his love. So though like Naomi, we are led astray, troubled, bitter, God has not simply cut us off in his anger. Instead, he has poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross to say to us, this is how much I love you. When Naomi said to Ruth and Orpah, remember when she was getting ready to go back to Bethlehem, when Naomi said to Ruth and Orpah, you have to save your life. In order to save your life, you have to lose me. Go, my life is over. You go. Ruth, a picture of Jesus' love, says, no, your life's not over. Mine is. 
That's what Jesus says to us. In your trials, in your dark days, let me go darker. Let me go deeper. Let me descend into depths of suffering and hell that you will never experience. So that you will know in your most darkest days, facing cancer, separation, difficulty, estrangement, relational problems, physical suffering, whatever it may be, you will know this much. My Jesus loves me. And he will hold on to me and he will cling to me and he will make sure that I make it through. And he will show me many signs for good along the way. So in light of this, how can we doubt that God is at work in our lives for our good? How can we doubt his love for us? How can we doubt that he desires our ultimate best? Though he takes us through deep waters of pain and suffering and loss, it's only that we might know him as the bread of life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together in your word this morning, reflecting on how you work in the messy brokenness of this world. Lord, we acknowledge that any of this could be our lot in life. We could suffer great loss, and all of us to a certain degree can identify with what Naomi has experienced. We've experienced some loss in some form, and it's brought upon us great anguish of soul and difficulty. And how we pray that in these days, through the example of our sister Ruth, that we might cling to you and cling to one another and help each other through the trials and difficulties of life, knowing that you have a good purpose for all of them. And you are working out everything for our good, according to your glorious promise and purpose for us in Christ Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen.